0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. We have invited PMH Atwater, one of the great pioneers in near-death experiences, back to It's Rainmaking Time after she graciously shared with us the history of near-death research several weeks ago. We are going to be talking today about her new book, Near-Death Experiences, The Rest of the Story what they teach us about living, dying, and our true purpose. She is the author of 10 books on near-death research and also another book you may want to pick up called The Big Book of Near-Death Experiences, The Ultimate Guide to What Happens When We Die. She is loved and appreciated and recognized by Ray Reynolds, who has done massive amounts of police investigative work and more. She is appreciated by many people in the field, including Stephen Schwartz, Scott Olson, and Larry Dossey. We welcome her back to its rainmaking time to discuss the new book, which you all should pick up. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome PMH Atwater. Back to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Hi, and I can talk pretty well this time. Very good. <laughs> I'm impressed. Yeah, well, you know, I- I'm trying. <laughs> you sound so much better. But the segment that we did a few weeks ago, you really shared so much incredibly substantive content about the whole history of this area. I think the first thing in reading near-death experience is the rest of the story that that moved me is how you tied everything together about your near-death research. And you bring some of the most current revelations and discoveries of today, which I want to start with right off the bat. We're going to go to page 206, where you talk about the heart being the fifth brain. Oh, it is indeed. I want you to explain why, because I think that this is something that everybody can relate to right off the bat.
1: Well, um, Most of the um, cells in the heart, when I say most of them, I'm saying between sixty and and sixty five percent are are uh, um, like like the neurons in the brain. I I mean they're identical. So so the so the heart literally is a brain and it responds to the brain of course instantaneously but also the limbic system instantaneously so you've got these three working together the brain the heart and the limbic system as if it were a giant organism that is capable of not only working within consciousness but to uh, to be able to facilitate uh, the true purpose of the soul in the body at that time. You know, w- when we talk about things like um, uh, organ transplants, especially the transplant of the heart, and 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 in most of those cases, the individual afterward begins to display uh, the characteristics and personality and, and quirks and and uh, you know behavior traits. Of the previous individual Uh, of course they're going to do that because the heart that has been implanted in 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 the new person is literally part of the brain of the former person so our our heart has been scientifically established not by me this is science our heart
0: is our fifth brain fascinating the other thing you said is that not only it's a major glandular structure of the body with an electromagnetic field five thousand times more powerful than that of the brain organ. Explain it to us. That's because of the emotions.
1: That's because of its connection to the limbic system, certainly the brain, but but you look at the heart. It, 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 and its connection to the limbic system. Of course, the limbic is the seat of emotions in the body. But, but you look more at the brain and how it functions, it, it literally produces a torus around us. It, it's the center of the Taurus, the Taurus being the only self-organizing waveform in the universe. So it's, it, 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 um, it's sort of like a donut, you know, and, and and the middle of the donut is the middle of the Taurus. The Taurus itself is the donut. So if you look at that self-organizing waveform, we we couldn't have matter in the universe. Matter could not exist in our universe if it didn't have self-organizing waveforms, um, that's what uh, you know—matter and, and shape and form—that all comes from the torus. So, so the torus in our body, um, the, the producer of the torus, the creator of the torus in our body, is our heart, and our heart has to have a lot of energy to do that—to create that torus. And it does it, and, and you know, just so fantastically. You know, we're talking about the aura, and we're talking about uh, energy, and 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 our senses. The engine of that is the Taurus, and the and the producer of the Taurus is the heart, not the brain. It is the heart. The heart is really, you know, sort of like our heart of hearts. It's like the center of our being. Um, you know, that's not just poetry. That's fact. Uh, if you want to look for wherein resides the seat of the soul, um, throughout time, we've always said it's the heart. Well, of course it's the heart. that That's where our major essence flows out from.
0: I thought that that piece of information was a revelation. Not that the heart carries connection to the emotional self, but that the heart really is where the action is in the body, with the soul, with the spirit, with all of it. You said, shaped like a Taurus donut, the heart field busily converts one form of energy to another as it generates an infinite number of harmonic waves. But then you say, these harmonics run throughout all bodily systems and are so sensitive that they react to conditions four to five minutes before actual occurrence. The futuristic awareness tells the heart if what's coming is positive or negative so it can prepare. First, the heart feels the coming event. Then the brain is aware of it. Then the eyes see it. That was the biggest wow for me, right. the way you articulated that.
1: And, and, and that's pure, pure science. You know, that's not
0: metaphysics. That's, you know, that, that's not some psychic channeler. Yeah, you know? <laughs> that's pure science. Ladies and gentlemen, this is an example of the substance that's in this book. Yeah, and
1: it's all—it's all written in kind of an irreverent irreverent style, so it's a page turner. (laughs) And uh, all—I mean, hey, this is my last book on near death research, not my last book, but my last book on near death research. And so I figured, hey, I'm going out with a—I'm going out with style here. I'm going (laughs) out with a a, a blast.
0: I want to talk about the fact that. When people have died, supposedly, at the flatline event, that you describe in the book an example of the blind describing the people in the room, the room itself, as if they've been sighted when they've been blind since birth. That's true. How was that able to happen and why? Well,
1: nobody knows how.
0: Or why? We would have to use conjecture
1: to say why.
0: Um,
1: And using conjecture... I can suppose here it's the soul. I can suppose here that they've lived before. I can suppose here that reincarnation is true, because how else could they do it? How else could they know that red is red, green is green? How else could they describe patterns on a wall? How else could they they describe a person's body, um, the different traits and and features of the body if they've never if they've never touched that person before? If they've never heard that voice before, and and that person walks into the room, let's say it's a nurse or an orderly, and and they got them, they they you know they can describe them, the features, everything, um, and they're blind. They've never seen, never seen at all, and we we'll, and we have a few of these cases. We don't have a lot, but we have a few of them, and you know, and, and it makes you stop and think. It's like, for instance. When we're talking about flatlined, we're talking about people that have been flatlined, no heart, no breath, no uh, brain uh, activity. You know, no brain activity whatsoever, but to average between 5 to 20 minutes. Now, that's average. That's not unusual. That's average, 5 to 20 minutes. Well, we know scientifically that the brain, if it doesn't get oxygen in 3 to 4 minutes, you've got brain damage. These people are coming back um, with little or no brain damage. And in fact, brain enhancement, that's one of the features of the near-death experience. You come back smarter than you were before. So we're, we're looking... You know, if, if you've got to be really honest about the near-death experience, it re- reveals more about life than it does death. And what it does is it challenges... Our description, our knowing, our sense, our learning about what life is, what is the human body, who are we, and how do we function? We don't function like we've been taught uh, medically or in school, in gym, looking around, looking at everybody. Our religions, our our uh, various uh, spiritual. Um uh, traditions uh, we're actually a little bit different than that, and in fact more than that and If you want to play with that kind of idea, all you have to do is open up the Christian Bible, it says very clearly, we are gods in the making um hey, look at that uh what experiences like the near death experience uh, Say to us is that maybe that's true. Maybe we are indeed far more than we thought we were and capable of being able to function in a much broader uh, harmonic world that, that, that the harmonics of our world is actually the universe. The harmonics of the universe is actually the harmonics of all creation, and we're able once we have these kinds of experiences, we're able to see, feel, and sometimes operate in harmonics that are either um, ultra or you know uh, different than what we thought we could be in.
0: Uh, And and we move into these naturally. At this point in your research, consciousness isn't in the body then at all, is it? Well, in the body, outside of the body, everywhere.
1: I mean, who's to say where consciousness resides? It does not uh, reside just in your brain. No way, no how. In fact, your entire auric field and all the
0: harmonics of the heart is, is consciousness did you ever meet Danny and Brinkley? Oh, I've known Danny and for decades. When you talk to each other about each of your near death experiences, were they similar? Well, they're
1: similar in how they affected us and what we did about it. Um, similar in pattern, yes. Uh, you'll find that, um, almost all of the near death experiences are similar in pattern, and, uh, but they'll vary. Uh, they'll vary uh, depending on, uh, you know, the person. Uh, but the pattern, uh, the pattern holds internationally. It's, uh, You know, it's uh, it's a universal pattern.
0: People often come back smarter, wiser, kinder with a sense of love and connection to others different than when they went out. What percentage would you say of near-death experiencers experienced that?
1: Oh, gee. Um or how prevalent was that? I, I can say that seventy nine percent were significantly changed because of what happened to them. Uh, the other twenty one percent claimed that they weren't changed that month, much that they're that they're principally the same person they were before, um, same ideas, say you know, same patterning, same behavior. And with those twenty one percent in those cases where I could meet and have sessions with their significant others, every one of the significant others said, would wink at me and joke and said, you know, don't listen to that person. They really did change. And, um, you know, one of the things I found with experiencers, myself included, you don't know how much you have changed. You cannot recognize that. It takes years, and it really takes other people to point that out. You know, in my own case my before and after photographs are somewhat different. And and I do have have those. Um uh, they're supposed to be on my website somewhere. They're certainly in uh my little book I Died Three Times in Nineteen Seventy Seven, the complete story. Don't you love that title? Now on <laughs> Amazon dot com. And um uh, um my my two photos are are in there, the before and the after. Uh You know, when we're talking about the after effects, I want to just scuttle right in here very quickly and say they're just as physical as they are psychological. Give us an example. Uh, Well, it directly affects the brain-mind assembly when I'm talking about that. I'm talking about changes in brain function afterward, in many cases changes in brain structure uh um often changes in brain hemisphere dominant, uh, dominance in other words if you were left brain before you're right brained afterward if you were right brained before you tend to be left brained afterward um lots of changes in the in the way the nervous system functions and what you're able to affect or um, be a part of afterward changes in the digestive system, skin sensitivity. Um, I think it was seventy five percent of my research base had electrical sensitivity afterward. You're you're very sensitive to light and to sound, um, especially if you're around electronic equipment. Um, some people when they walk by a television set, you know, it changes channel. Um, nobody touched anything; it was just a walk by. Sometimes they explode light bulbs and this kind of thing. In my own case, I kept smoking up tape recorders. And uh, and I would um, sort of blow up, if you will, (laughs) microphones and electrical systems. And, you know, that got to be really expensive. Plus, it it became an ethical issue with me. So I, I found a way to deal with that. And the way I deal with it is uh, if I'm going to use any of our electronic brothers and sisters, and that's what I call them <laughs> out of respect, I will uh, you know completely relax, go into that meditative state, then enter the equipment I'll introduce myself I'll, I'll you know help the equipment to get used to my energy, and my energy surges i'll I'll, I'll talk to the equipment, let it know that. I'm not here to hurt it or bother it in any way that we'll be a team, we'll be able to function.
0: It's working because nothing in my environment is blown up. So you've done a good meditative job. Yeah, and then you come back into your body and, you know, you deal with the equipment and it works just fine. People who have died together. We have NDEs together, near-death experiences together. Can you talk about the hotshot example a little bit? Well, that
1: certainly is is a big one that we know about. I'm sure that there are other large cases. We, we just don't know about them yet. But that's the big biggest one that we do know about. And that was Ar- Arvin Gibson. He's the one who found that and then gave me permission to quote his work. Um, this was uh, a captain or a chief. Of a, a smoke fighting uh, firefighters, and they had, um, and he reported it to to Arvin. Um, it, it was a team of of twenty. Now I've, I've heard some people say forty, but Arvin told me it was twenty. Anyway, a team of firefighters, and they got trapped on a mountain on a uh, on a mountain peak. And I don't know if you know that much about fires, but they suck out all the oxygen. And this is what happened. Sucked out all the oxygen. Well, of course, immediately they put on their little aluminum tents that they carry with them. But that didn't help because it took out all the oxygen. And they all um, principally died. Well, help arrived shortly thereafter. And they were able to rescue every one of these and take them to the hospital. They all had to be hospitalized. And while they were in the hospital, um, one by one in each room, the investigators went around and and got their testimony, you know, what happened to you, what happened to you, what happened to you, and uh, each one individually. And when they were all through, they got together and, and were just absolutely stunned because all these guys had the same story. And the same story was, after all the oxygen was gone, they left their bodies. They all floated up out of their bodies, and they all saw each other. And they all talked to each other as they were floating out of their bodies. And, and this one guy that the captain talked to I think his name was Jose, he'd had um, a malformed foot. He was was born that way. And and he looked down at his foot and he said, Jose, look, your foot is fine. It's not malformed anymore. And then they all went higher into greater realms, and they met loved ones who died and gone on before and went into the light. And uh, that was principally their experience. But, of course, the biggie was the captain noticing Jose's foot. And, and the next biggie, I think, was that all of them told the same story without ever having discussed it with each other first. In other words, the investigators went around and talked to them all in the hospital. They were in different rooms. They didn't have a chance to talk to each other.
0: Wow. You know, when I read that, I really wanted you to talk about that and share a little bit about it to the audience because that's a very firmly documented case yes. of all these men really dying, having a near-death experience, and then... Well, they either died out. or nearly died. You know, there's no way you can say about vital signs except that they seemed dead and they were rushed to the hospital. You talk about something called previews, showing history and the future. Explain this to us. Well, well some people do have previews. They're able
1: to see uh, the future in their near-death experience. Uh, one woman saw the man she would marry. So I am very clearly, and what's really interesting to me in her case, was she saw him dressed as if they had been married in a past life. In other words, he was wearing that particular kind of clothing of that era, and that she would marry him again in this life. And she did. Um, She wasn't even going with him at the time, hadn't even met him. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Another one was um, the bombs dropping over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And a, 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 a woman, uh, in her near-death experience, she was a child experiencer, saw this. And, and, and um, in a spirit form, a soul form, went over there to help the dying from the A-bombs being dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasa- Nagasaki. And that didn't, and then came back and, you know, into her body, re entered her body and revived from her near death experience. And none of this ever happened. Uh, She didn't even know what that mushroom cloud was for another, oh, a couple of decades, decade and a half, couple of decades, when the actual bomb was dropped. So do you call that a preview or, you know, I I don't know the timing on that one. Many of them do see things, like with my child experiencers, every once in a while they will see uh, a future sibling, um, and they'll see that that sibling is coming in, and, and they'll know what that sibling's name is going to be, and a little bit about that sibling um another woman um experienced her life as she, she was uh and and this is another child experiencer um seeing her life uh what she would do in the occupation who she would marry how many children she would have um the the football games that she would go to um even the name of the teams, the colors, and it all really happened just that way.
0: Interesting. I have a question for you that's perplexed me throughout even the original conversations that we had, the first show that we did together. In our understanding of memory and recall, you have to be, quote, awake on some level or still living in your body, your body still functioning to have memory and to have recall. But someone who is physically dead, but is not really dead yet because they're going to return to their body, that body will awaken. I think it's fascinating how they're able to have recall about these other worlds and these revelations and these experiences when the body is clinically dead. That clearly tells us we're not our body. It totally validates that in the most profound way. Well, it certainly indicates that the soul is real and that the soul is primary. Not our personality, not our brain, the soul. So describe, at least at this point in your life, your frame of reference for what a soul is so we have a context for it. We all have a sense of it, but we don't know what the it is. Do you? Uh, (laughs) Oh, that's a big one. I know.
1: I'm going to have to get real personal here because I saw my my soul in my uh, second near-death experience. And it was just a wee spark. It was like a spark of fire and it was very small but yet it was so huge and so powerful with the energy it emanated and the harmonics it emanated it was just stunning to me how incredibly powerful our soul is yet how minuscule if you're go- if you're looking at volume and size and this kind of thing and I also discuss in the, in the book a little bit about the soul and and some uh, experiments that were done in hospitals uh, um, in the in the earlier part of the twentieth century, and uh, they had permission, of course, and uh, with a dying individual, and they put them on a scale and and measure them before they died, and as they're dying, and after they have died, and. There were there were actually several hospitals that did this. The original hospital, and then several follow-ups years later, and they all found that the sole way, or or, or the, the, um, that there was weight loss at death, and that weight loss was um, somewhere between about three fourths of an ounce and a whole ounce. And, you know, that this that seems so minuscule. But yet for the scientific community, where did the ounce go? And, and then one guy was conjecturing and he said, well, look at, at how much a microchip can hold. And a whole ounce, that could hold almost like universal knowledge.
0: Isn't it true that when many people die, they urinate or they defecate if they have anything oh, no, that's left? That's true. In their the body system. openings
1: uh, um, do open.
0: Sure. Yes. So the people on the clinical realm who are by the book may say that this study can't really be valid because the body releases stuff through the body openings at death. You know, sometimes it releases it right away, uh, sometimes not.
1: Sometimes uh, you know, there's a little bit of a delay. Uh, But what we're finding with these cases is um, that the body can still be reanimated and lived in. So I can't tell you if it released liquids uh, before or after. I can only say that the body was livable. Now, in, in one case that we know of that is documented, fully documented, and that's of George Ritchie. And George Ritchie, of course, was the first... Uh, near-death experiencer that Raymond Moody had ever heard of Uh, George by then was a psychiatrist in Richmond, Virginia and um, Raymond Moody was here in Charlottesville where I live and uh, heard uh, George Ritchie give his talk about his own near-death experience and in George's case Um, and again this is all fully documented and I think the book is returned from Tomorrow Anyway, um, uh, George died. Uh, it was military installation, and he got uh, some kind of a pneumonia or something. Anyway, he died. And it, uh, they tried everything to revive him. Couldn't. And it did absolutely everything. So, you know, the, the white sheet over the head kind of thing. And he, it was, um, he was taken to the, the body was taken to the morgue and he was in the the morgue at the base hospital and it was full of a lot of people who had died and sheets over you know the white sheet over the body and it, and as george tells it um he, he, he was at the point in his episode where it was time to go back to his body and he couldn't find it he went back to the room it wasn't there uh, went to the morgue, you know, yeah, and, and, him. and when he's in the morgue, here's all these bodies with white sheets over them, and he couldn't figure out which was his body. Well, in his case, his hand had, one of his hands had, uh, been lower than, than, than the sheet, and it had his class ring on it. And he recognized that class ring and he said, oh, that's my body. So that's the body he reanimated. And 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 then the body began to wiggle and jerk and squiggle and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And in order, the, you, you'll love this, the morgue door was open and in order, they happened to be walking by the hallway and he noticed that one of the corpses was wiggling. And he screamed, and he went for help. And of course, here, here come all the doctors on the run, and George is coming back to life.
0: And that had to have been way over twenty minutes. By the time you're at the morgue, you've been well, there. It's I don't been know. Hours I, I and can't hours. be sure, but anyway, we've got lots
1: of cases like that. In the case of George Rodinaya, dead, and in a supposedly in a freezer vault in a morgue in Tbilisi, Georgia, it was three days. Three days, and they brought him out to do an autopsy because it was a highly political uh, a case, and and they were cutting him up on the autopsy table, uh, the uh, they, you know the tea cut. and they had done the bottom part or the you know the bar of the tea, and then they they uh, were going the stem then of the tea was right up the, the trunk of the body toward the chin. And uh, so they'd done they'd done the lower part. They were, you know, going up the chest, and his eyes opened. Well, you know, that's not normal. I mean, that's 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 not abnormal. So they simply shut his eyes, kept cutting, and his eyes opened again. And they didn't think anything of it. They shut his eyes and kept cutting, and his eyes opened a third time. And the head of autopsy screamed. Uh, fell backward and took a one-month leave of absence. And we have <laughs> the case of George Ronanaya. And one of his uncles was on the autopsy team. George himself was a physician. Wow. And his case is phenomenal. Phenomenal. Right. Of course, that we have no way to know, certainly, what the temperature was in the freezer vault in Tbilisi, Georgia. But... He certainly was there three days, and they brought him out, and he seemed still dead, as near as they could tell he was dead. The body looked dead. Certainly there was no fluids left on the guy. Um, they're doing, you know, they're doing the cut. I mean, they're cutting the guy up. And then he, uh, he revives
0: so I think after all of these years, what you've learned is that we know a lot more about who we are than we did, but what we also are learning is that everything we've been taught about who we are and what the body is and what consciousness is... Well, it's all subject to question. Yeah. It's all now subject
1: to question. It's not what our text tell us. Uh, what we consistently find, what the medical community must and is facing is that when nothing is functioning, the body's flatlined, the body is dead, dead, dead? You can still have out of body experiences, clear, enhanced consciousness, self identity with emotions, cognition, thought perception,
0: full use of the faculties, and intact memories. That's what I'm saying is so mind-blowing. This is so mind-blowing that we have so much evidence for this now. I know you said that the doctors are getting it now. And they're well,
1: they're, they're starting to open up to yeah, it. Yeah, I think it it's at way.
0: the beginnings, don't you? Most doctors are still very much in the clinical mindset, don't you think? Well, a
1: lot of them are, but even in that clinical mindset, you know, in all the books that I write, well, certainly in the last two books I, I've written, um, I have, uh, places for, for the med- medical and cautions and what to look for when you're treating someone who might have been a near-death experience or especially a child. I think that's really critical with children, uh, because of the difference in, 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 in um, the physiological changes afterward. Uh, but, but we certainly, uh, they're having to face it, and, 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 and some areas more than others. Uh, I had a child experiencer about two years ago, grown now, had a, a really critical case of lupus, was rushed to John Hopkins Hospital, up there in Baltimore, John Hopkins. Uh, this was an emergency case, rushed in, the doctor there, um, was curious, he said, have you had to have a near death experience? And she said yes. And of course she um she was seven at the time, it was drowning. He said, Tell me about it. So she told him about it and immediately immediately this guy switched all of her medications to the mildest the, the mildest um uh, pharmaceutical he could give her and a child's dose, in other words, the mildest dose of the mildest medicine he could give her, and overnight she was well
0: and went home. No problem. That's an unusual case, don't you think? Well, it's unusual in that here's here's,
1: um, an emergency physician who knew about near-death experiences, but more importantly, knew about the after effects. Because when you come back, you lose your tolerance of pharmaceuticals. And and so that's a big one for the medical community, especially with kids, when they are medicated according to age and weight. Well, hey, if they've had a near-death experience, whoa, whoa, whoa you got to go less than that. Um, So, you know, all kinds of cautions in my books, uh, but we're trying to reach the medical community. We're, we're, We're more and more successful than we used to be, and, you know, I'm hoping that my books, everybody else's books, all of this information gets out there. You know, IANS, um I A N D S, the International Association for Near Death Studies. We just call them by their initials, I A N D S, IANDS. INS. Um, they have a website, you know, www.ians.com, dot com, um where they 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 give classes, lessons, CEU credit. Uh, material that nurses and doctors can take to educate themselves uh, to become more uh, fluent in how to handle a a person who might be having a near-death experience under their care and how to handle them afterward, even years afterward, even decades afterward, uh, because most of these changes are lifelong um, so you know, we're, we're
0: really trying to reach uh, the medical community in a big way. You also said in your book that medical staff often see spirits. What do you mean they by do that? Too. What does that mean, and how did you get them to talk to you?
1: Hey, my dear, how did I get anybody to talk to you're me? You're Columbo. Yeah, you're I, Columbo. I so. hey, you're, I'm Columbo. But... kid, I was raised in a police station. <laughs> you know, I know how to do it um but yeah yeah uh, wh- wh- what was wonderful what was it i i think it was 2007 or maybe 2005 a, a few years ago anyway in in Dallas Texas the home of the big huge uh medical community is like a city unto itself and at the md anderson um uh cancer center we held one of our we meaning INs, held one of their um, annual conferences. and at this one that hundreds of people were there. Most of them were medical people. Please understand that. Most of them were medical people and uh, open mic. And doctor after doctor got up and cried. Absolutely crying because finally at last they could talk without censure, uh, without fear of losing their job. And they were talking about what they could hear during surgery, what they could see during surgery. Beings on the other side, they were directed. They could see what's going on in the body as if they had x-ray vision suddenly these doorways or portals to the other side were open to them or beings from the other side were visiting or there or helping them and they were very much aware of the fact that
0: they were getting help, spirit help, and and how that had affected them. And they had to be in the closet about it for most of their profession. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They can't talk about it. Fascinating. You say that children often have adult minds in their childlike bodies and that Absolutely. half of them could remember their birth and some even their pre-birth. Talk about that. Uh, about a third of them had pre-birth memory. Half could uh, uh,
1: remember their birth. In those cases where I, I could go back and check with mom or dad or aunts and uncles or whatever, um, what they remembered was correct. Uh, I, I didn't find a single goof. Uh, they were accurate in what they could remember about their birth. What I found so stunning is those that had pre-birth memory. And uh, that pre-birth memory seemed to begin around seven months in utero. Now, we're talking about the third trimester. And um, what... Well, what medicine has found about the third trimester—that's when the so-called fetus, I call it a baby—but you know, the fetus can feel pain um, and respond to pain as as if it were a birthed child. Well, it seems as if the brain is fully functional at that time frame too. It has memory. It can think. It's intuitive. And it has full use of its faculties, in other words, it can see outside the the womb it can hear
0: outside the womb um you a know quick, and, quick and I have a chapter in one of my books called "Womb with a View." <laughs> I have a quick question before you go past that part. So the fetus has faculty it obviously doesn't have full developed faculty, or are you saying it does It, it has full use of its faculties. Full use of its faculties, even though it's not fully grown, even though it's not even born yet. Yes, and
1: that seems to happen right around seven months in utero. That, that's one of the reasons why I can no longer, um, I can no longer handle third trimester abortions. Just no way. I, I've seen too much. I have seen too much. I can no longer back that. No more. Um, once that um uh, once uh the fetus reaches that point uh, you truly have a baby you truly have a fully functioning child in there Fascinating. and and what that child can remember and see it is phenomenal it, it it it's like oops you know a big oops uh because once that child is born and old enough to have language, it, you know, what what it tells, what that child, little boy or girl, tells its parents is often very embarrassing to the parents. Uh, it's like major, major oops.
0: Isn't that why we as women are told to be very cognizant of what we say during the time of pregnancy?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, and
0: all the goings-on <laughs> in the environment, pre-delivery that this is absorbed into the consciousness and the... Oh, the kid picks it up immediately. Let let me give you an example here.
1: Uh, When I broached the topic of abortions, this one case, uh, the woman had like three or four kids previously, children, and she was pregnant again, and the family could not afford another child. I mean, they simply could not afford another child, and the mother was desperate. Um, and so she thought about having an abortion, aborting this child, and um she thought about it a lot, but she never did it. The child was born as a little girl. I talked to both mother and daughter here um and 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 you know the child was older by then when when I was able to talk to them um and nearly grown in fact, and the the mother told told me the stories that as soon as this little girl could talk, about two or three she'd go up and grab her mother's dress Uh, mother, believe it or not was actually wearing a dress instead of slacks she went up to her mother's dress tugged on it and and just practically screamed at her mother and said, why? why you try to kill me when I'm in your tummy why do you try to kill me (laughs) I mean, this kid knew all about the abortion. Well, you know, that caused a schism between mother and daughter. The mother felt was overcome with guilt. And the daughter hated her mother. And she would never accept her mother as her mother after that. It just wouldn't have anything to do, any more to do with her than she had to. And then in anger... And, and that went on year after year after year, and the mother was just, I mean, um, just undone by, by what the daughter picked up while she was still in the womb. Uh, now, unfortunately, I came across a number of these cases. So uh, this is a big deal about what the child can pick up. And the child picks up a lot. Uh, They can also, with their faculties, um, their perception can go outside the womb, and they can see things, colors, people, furniture, and, and describe that later on.
0: Fascinating. It's a real turnaround on everything we think we know. I want to talk a little bit with you about why people, right before they pass, look off to the left. I thought that was really interesting.
1: Why left why uh, and, and I've been noticing that for uh years and years and years, but it was at the m d Anderson you know the, the cancer center, that big huge meeting that we had there, and when we had one of the uh, uh, nurses got up you know the open mic section she got up and she said in uh, her uh, she she was i think a new nurse supervisor she said in her area eighty eight percent of the of her patients reported visitors from the other side always coming in from the left if they left their body and came back they left to the they went out to the left everything was left and she wanted to know why why left uh, well I noticed this for a long long time you know and a lot of nurses will discount this and say I We're always trained to come in on the right, to sit on the right, to hold
0: the right hand. Why are nurses trained to go in on the right? I don't know. I think that's interesting, uh, too. people, probably because the right
1: is your dominant hand. Uh, Or there's that sense of rightness if you're on the right. Uh, With horses, you always mount a horse to the right. Um, So it's that, uh, uh, there seems to be a comfort zone in our society about things right. You know, the idea of R-I-G-H-T, it's right if it's right, you know? Right away. Yeah. (laughs) So, but interestingly enough, if you talk to woodcarvers, they're always saying, they see things from the side of their eyes, and especially to the left, if you're talking to masseuse, or healing massage, uh, people they'll, they'll talk about uh, beings or, or energy coming in from the left that is so healing that it really takes over and guides them and helps them. Um, you you talk about uh, deathbed and after death, and they're all talking about well, we're going to the left, or it comes in from the left. Uh, People about to die, it's called the visitors. The visitors come. When the visitors come, you know that person is about to die. Visitors, being from the other side, they're called the visitors. You you talk to your nurses and doctors, they'll know about the visitors. Um, This is a worldwide, very common phenomenon, the visitors. They always come in from the left, or almost always. Are visitors ever animals? Yes, Yes, you can have visitors that are animals as well as people. Um, so I'm looking at near-death cases, and certainly they can go out through the top, they can leave through uh, uh, the right, the bottom of the seat, but most of the predominant number is to the left. So I started doing some real searching, you know, why left? And I found that on Earth, our planet, all amino acids. So we're talking about all living things, all the amino acids in all living things twist to the left. In space, most spiral galaxies rotate to the, the left. In science, it is known not known
0: why, but it is known that nature
1: prefers
0: the left. Fascinating. Fascinating correlations. I would be perplexed and be looking at this too if I were you, and I'm glad you're sorting some of it. So what does that tell us then? You've just opened a door for me.
1: <laughs>
0: it what
1: it tells me, if I look at the after effects, if I look at the experiences themselves, if I look at the behavior afterward, if I look at the entire phenomenon of near-death experiences, it shows me that they're bringing us back to the natural order. They're bringing us back to our natural power and our natural strength and who we are as natural beings. It, um, and in the field of near-death studies, we now, uh, in looking at after-effects, we've come to realize, especially through my work, that the after-effects of near-death experiences, near-death-like experiences, intensely spiritually transforming experiences are the same or similar you look at how all of these experiences affect the individual and it's it's either similar or identical or exactly the same so you know when i look at what's happening and that all of of us who have gone through a spiritually transforming experience irrespective of how we are drawn back to the natural order. The natural order is who we really are. We're drawn back there. We're drawn back to that strength and that power and that knowledge and that wisdom and that knowing of ourselves as ourselves, and if you turn to science, and I think sometimes it's very appropriate to do that, and and you, you turn to the science of fluid dynamics. Fluid dynamics tells us that if four to five percent of any grouping or condition is changed, the entire grouping or the entire condition. Will change according to that four to five percent. Keep in your mind the tipping point to change any group or consciousness or condition is four to five percent. Right now in the world, the, the estimate for near death experiences general population is four to five percent. Forty five percent, four to five percent of the world's population has had near death experiences or is currently having them that's the tipping point so what's happening in the world look at what's happening in the middle east you can you can link what's happening in the middle east and in many other places in our world to that tipping point of 4 to 5% because once the once energy tips or consciousness tips in that way in that manner it becomes so excited so highly charged that it cannot be contained so look at what's happening here we've got the people in the middle east all of a sudden waking up and realizing i want freedom i want to be heard I want a better life. I want my own relationship with with God or Allah or deity. I want a better life because I know I'm entitled to one, and I know I can get one. That's exactly what near-death experiencers say. That's how they behave afterward. I want freedom. I am free. I know I can be free. I can communicate now about the truths and the higher realities and a better world and and many of them devote themselves to doing everything they can to help the world be better afterward or be in a better place because they are here and and this this cry this thought this desire is now global it and is always leaderless that's because people like this cannot be governed They are self-reliant, they are self-responsible, and they are self-governing. So you get leaderless sweeps of change. That's exactly what's happening. We're here now. That revolution in consciousness that we've all been praying for, wanting, think we're seeing, it's here
0: now. We've gone through the tipping point. Containment has been breached. <laughs> I want to make the distinction between what you're describing in terms of what's going on amongst individuals in different parts of the world and what the media story around it are distinct. What you're talking about are what's happening within individuals' consciousness versus right, the, the consciousness. story and the politic that's being transmitted. The consciousness yes. transcends the quote unquote earth story. Okay, great. That's this what I want to consciousness. Absolutely,
1: and that's what fluid dynamics it 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 describes energy consciousness. Four four to five percent is the tipping point. We have passed the tipping point. So whether or not you want to uh, want to call it people protesting against uh, oligarchy or whatever, it's their consciousness. It's their consciousness that drives them to use Facebook and Twitter. Uh, These devices is how they're able to communicate what they're feeling and what they're seeing. The consciousness comes first. Always. It's in the mind. It's in the consciousness. It's in that energy. That always comes first. And it's driving them uh, in according to where they live and the politics that's there Sure, you can play with that all you want. But what's really happening is the consciousness has shifted, and it's shifting globally. We can look at that. Uh, The math is there. The template is there. It's all in the book.
0: You talk about so many things in the book. I have a few more things. When I started the rainmaking company, I used to share with people, businesses are conscious. They're animate. They have consciousness. The legal structure that you use has consciousness. The way that you do your accounting has consciousness. Your business process has consciousness. People didn't know what the heck I was talking about. And they thought, well, maybe she's talking about feng shui and all that. But it totally changes how you do business, who you do business with, if you relate to it being alive. Anyway, that's a whole separate matter. But it's interesting how long I've had to wait for certain things to become understood by the public.
1: <laughs> well, now, now it's, 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 um, it's, it's hitting us in the face. We can't deny it anymore. It's as if, uh,
0: Kim, it's as if consciousness is waking up to itself. Very well articulated. I want to talk about coherence and holograms for a bit. But before we get there, I want to talk about the fifth dimension. And I would like you to distinguish what it is and why it's relevant, not only to us in the here and now, but also to those who have had near-death experiences and those who will have near-death experiences. Uh,
1: When we're talking about the fifth dimension, and when we do that, we're talking about um, a a dimension very different than the one we have now. let me quote James Belchler here. He said, Consciousness exists completely in the fifth dimension as an extension of the living body. It is a resonance pattern, a harmony in the fifth di- dimension. Through the fifth dimension, all particles in existence link to all other particles. That's because uh, in the fifth dimension, that's where the webbing is. That's where the total openness is. Everything is open. When they talk about the Akashic Records and, and the, the records of the soul, the records of a country, the records of the world, um, the higher knowledge all being in the Akashic Re- Records, uh, when you're in the fifth dimension, all that's open. Everything is open in the fifth dimension. Everything. So, you're talking about a particular dimension more and more people are moving into. Because once your consciousness cannot be contained, once it's no longer uh, completely yours, that it is now, you now begin to realize that you're linked to everybody else, you're all part of the same web, then you're in that fifth dimension. All is possible in the fifth dimension. When we're talking about the void, and there's lots of, you know, legends and myths and stories and traditions about the void, whether you're in Buddhism or, you know, uh, uh, mystical and metaphysical traditions talk about the void, the void is, I consider to be either the fifth dimension or the entry into the fifth dimension.
0: Is the void where the soul goes in a transition time from life as it knows it- I
1: don't know that the void is where a soul goes, although okay. a lot of near-death experiencers do indeed go to the void, and I was one of them. But it seems to be part of the mechanics, if you will, that holds the creation, holds that energy that enables creation to exist. Uh, uh, If we're talking about the void being devoid of everything, well, no. There's a shimmer there. There's an activity there. There is a pregnancy there from which creation um,
0: evolves. Very, very, very interesting. We're going to switch for a moment here because it's so profound. (laughs) We could literally stop the show right now. Or you can talk about threshold experiences. All
1: spiritually transforming experiences are threshold experiences, whether uh, uh, near-death, near-death-like, spiritually transforming experiences. doesn't matter the, the religious tradition or the spiritual tradition. They are all threshold experiences. What is a threshold experience? It is that moment, that second, that essence, that shift... Where you, you are thrust into that boundary between this world and the next world, between the brain and mind, between all structures of physicality, and you could say almost the fifth dimension. You're moving through the bound, that boundary. In a lot of traditions, they call the watcher at the gate. Well, the watcher at the gate literally is your, is your brain and what and the different forms and constructs that your brain will present to you. So you go through that watcher or the, or the brain. I call it the, a brain shift. Uh, and you, you enter then a very different world, a different land, a different reality that works a very different way. You're moving into the fifth dimension. So all of these are threshold experiences. And we're finding that, at least in the United States, more than half of the
0: people are reporting threshold experiences. Fascinating. Do you think that DMT that's manufactured in the pineal gland helps us through some of these threshold experiences?
1: Well, it helps us all the time. Um, uh, It's called the spirit molecule. Right. Right. To what extent we can claim that DMT uh, works with the soul or is the entry of the soul or helps the soul or, or enables the soul, and we don't know. We, we you know, there, there just has not been enough, enough research, but there has been enough done that indicates that this is somehow involved in any type of spiritually transforming experience, that somehow the soul uses this. Um, It seems to be some kind of substance that enlivens and awakens the soul or enables the soul to work more comfortably, more efficiently, more uh, easier. And so people who take it um, take it extra, you know, take it uh, orally. Um, with the idea that they're going to have a spiritual experience. Uh, what, what causes me to kind of back away and hesitate a little bit here is that, yes, they can have an experience. Yeah, you know, it's like taking some kind of hallucinogenic drug. You can have an experience, but you don't have the after-effects of a true experience. What you're getting is the light show. What you're getting is
0: the fun. What you're getting is the introduction. What you're doing is you're teasing yourself. It's like getting the appetizer and not the dinner. Yeah. Uh, Now, if you you take it under controlled
1: circumstances whereby you have a leader or a director or someone who knows what they're doing, who can help you and guide you, then sometimes it can indeed be a door opener that enables the uh, after the pattern of physiological and psychological after effects to begin.
0: But the distinction here is that the person is initiating through their free will to have that experience versus having died and maybe that Part of their body got activated to help them through this other journey that their soul's making.
1: Well, some of them do it quite successfully. I know one guy um, who's a psychologist who, uh, as part of his early training, uh, took that particular course and did the deed. They were out in nature, it was, uh, it was one of those shamanic journeys, and his teacher, his professor, with the class, uh, all did it out in nature. And uh, I I don't know how many times they did it over whatever span of time, Uh, but uh, for him, when he he describes his experience to me, it's almost as if he really did have a a near-death experience. And, and, um, you know, decades later, I can see in his behavior and how he lives his life and how he thinks that he is indeed exhibiting all of the after-effects of a near-death experience. So in his case, it was very successful. Uh, But in most cases, most people I know of, and especially in the book called DMT, uh, Spirit Molecules, what Strassman and, and... that's the author, Dr. Strassman. Right. What he's describing in there as a near-death experience, it, it, it leaves me cold because what he describes as a near-death experience is so superficial that I didn't even recognize that he was describing a near-death experience. And then he talks about the after-effects afterward and were the people pleased and, you know, uh, how, how were they affected by it. I just had to shake my head and say, oh, gee, you know, another guy who's trying to connect what happens with a larger experience to the taking of drugs. And so I I literally just tossed the book. It wasn't until I um, sat down with my friend in Richmond, Virginia, and he told me about his experience, and I was able to really examine what happened to him and afterward. And it could be that he's an exception. I don't know that he is. But I do know that in his case, it was genuine. But what Dr. Strassman is talking about in the book, DMT, um,
0: the spirit spirit molecule, molecule, I really question. Okay. I just wanted to ask you about that. You have shared that there are something called death flashes that people have reported about, and they're the color yellow. What is that? Explain it. Well, not necessarily yellow. Uh,
1: when I'm talking
0: about yellow
1: in, in 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 the book, I'm talking about people who have near-death experiences that report going through a yellow haze or are greeted by a yellow light. You know, there's something about this bright light that. that um, that people describe either as bright white, bright yellow, bright gold, bright silver, somewhere in that range, and then you get a lot of doctors who will, you know, shine a pen penlight uh, into a person that's supposedly dead. That they'll shine it into the eye. If they can see yellow on the retina in the back of the eye, then they know oh the soul is gone. The the the, the person is really dead. Um. When I was training people way back in the 60s um, how to take out-of-body experiences, and and then we called it astral traveling, Um, and I trained a lot of people how to do it, Uh, once they got through this yellow filter or yellow haze, then they were there. Everything's fully colored, natural, but brighter than usual, Then I know that they really left their body, and they were on their way. There was something about yellow. Well, when I did a lot of study about the eye and and the progression of colors, um, it it is thought by by science that you know we have the the purple rods and the color cones. that originally people saw the darker colors or the violets or you know you know uh, our world the planet earth as it was developing was kind of dark at first so we had more of a dark vision but um as as more and more sunshine more and more light then we could then take in that white light and they thought that the the, the first jump from being stimulated by by sunlight to the full array of colors was the color yellow. Yellow was a filter color. And I, I've seen that again and again and again. Well, in nature, yellow doesn't exist. In photography, yellow does not exist. The only way you can see yellow or, or photograph yellow is... Uh, for you, in your brain, is um, a chemical. There has to be a certain. Uh, I'm not a doctor. But, Frequency. Um, it, it, um, it, it's chemical it's All in your brain. Yellow is chemically created in your brain. You do not have a color cone for uh, a color cone for yellow. You have red. You have uh, what is it? Green and blue. But you don't have for yellow.
0: That's fascinating. fascinating. That's created.
1: The same way in photography. It's created by chemical infusion of, of uh, the photographic lens plate, you know, whatever. Uh, yellow is a, is a chemically created color. So I look back at these other bits of information and I'm noticing, aha, can, uh, yellow is a signal. It is a lens. It, um, you know, there's just something special about yellow. Well, look around. If someone is wearing all yellow, or if there's a bright yellow car, what does? It, how do you respond to that? Immediately you're up, uplifted. Immediately you feel this surge of energy or this interest. You know, it, it, there's something very special about yellow and how it affects us.
0: So at the level of a near-death experience, if experiencers saw a yellow, maybe it is a portal. Or a filter. Yeah. And more of a filter or a screen
1: or a haze.
0: Yes. And now, I know this is very difficult. Some of this is very difficult material to articulate. You're doing a great job. I want to talk a little bit about coherence and holograms with you. There's a lot of recent interest and data about what coherence is. A lot of people are reading about coherence and have become interested for the first time in that word and what that is. It's like you move into coherence,
1: you're moving into harmony with it, it's like you're joining, it's like you're connected. Your your, um, coherence is very similar to synchronicity. In fact, as far as I'm concerned, they're almost the same. But if you're... um, Let's say you're in a room full of a whole bunch of people. And uh, a particular speaker or person starts talking and gets everybody's interest, then they keep talking, and all of a sudden they get everybody's emotions involved, and the people get really, really interested, and then all of a sudden you have group mind, one mind. Right. That's coherence. Everybody has entered into coherence.
0: So for um, many people you, listening, coherence is not just connection. It's way more than that. Yeah.
1: You reach that harmony, that level, and we're talking here energetic level. We're talking here that mathematical formula equation where everything moves into coherence. They move into the same pattern. They move into the same
0: rhythm. They move into the same pulse beat. So it's like energetic togetherness.
1: It's like consciousness brings all of itself together with itself so you don't have any disparate parts got it we're together it's like after 911 instantly we went into coherence in this country we were one with japan they entered coherence they are one do you see on the news yesterday that One highway, major highway, is split apart by what happened. One part of the highway had sunk many, many feet below the other. Yes. It was torn up. In three days, it was totally repaired. You cannot tell that it was ever split or that it was ever torn apart. Those people entered into coherence. They worked as if one mind One body, one soul, and that road was completely repaired.
0: Pretty remarkable. Pretty remarkable.
1: That's coherence.
0: We say charismatic speakers
1: can bring people together into one. Martin Luther King was one. That's coherence.
0: Brings us together as one. Why did you write about holograms and holographic science? Well, it seems to apply as far as I'm concerned. Would you explain it to the audience and how it connects? People will read it in your book, but it's such a huge subject now. What are you really saying about holograms?
1: It's like any particle contains the whole. Any bit contains the whole. Any image contains the whole. Any piece has the whole in it. You know, it, it, it's sort of like nature, if you will. It's, a, it's like the seed has the whole. Um We understand this, of course, now in, in, in photography and the way we can send beams. Uh, we can take any part of a picture and and we can send a beam through that and then angle another beam off in another direction. And in that little bitty piece of a picture... It, we can reproduce the entire picture. It's the same way with energy. It's the same way with coherence. It's the same way with consciousness. It's the, it's the way the world works. Any little bitty seed or little bitty piece of contains the whole pattern. The whole pattern is always there.
0: Um, I don't know how else to That's make perfect. that clear. That's clear. That's 100% clear. So with regard to near-death experiences, how does your writing about a hologram connect to that? There's I a reason you it, I wrote think about it. it
1: shows us the larger picture. Okay. Because in my book, one of the main things I'm doing with that book is I am establishing that near-death experiences are, are not any kind of anomaly, but are rather part of the larger genre of transformations of consciousness so the first half of that book really summarizes my work with near-death experiences and does it in a deeper way than i have ever done before then the whole book shifts at chapter 16 the key is intensity and then from then on i complete my theoretical model of brain shift spirit shift don't let that scare you folks I mean, the book is a page-turner, remember? <laughs> so I go through brain shift, I go through spirit shift, and I'm showing what transformations of consciousness are, regardless of, of what kind you're speaking of, why we have them, what they're for, and where they lead us, and it's not where you think.
0: That's for sure.
1: It's not where most people think. If you look at the larger genre, and I think we all must, I think the time has come to get out of these little uh, footholds and, and little little slots that we're in and look at the whole picture. If you look at the whole picture, what do these episodes what do they do? Well, they improve the human animal, the human species. Uh, we're smarter than before. We're kinder than before. We're, we're more capable, more intuitive, more inventive, more innovative, more clever than we were before. It, it's it's an it's an incredible improvement on the human species that moves us back into the natural flow of living on the earth plane. You get enough of us, groups of us, that have gone through this shift and gone through this change, and then it uplifts and changes society. It uplifts and helps nature. It changes everything. If if you do a study of history... You can go back and and see how when groups, large groups, groups of people went through these kinds of shifts, then we got the renaissances. There's been many uh, renaissances, not just the one in Europe, and and they all have come from the people having made this kind of shift. If you look at that again and really study the dynamics here, then you can say a, transformations of consciousness are a biological imperative. It is how the human race evolves, expands, and grows. It is a biological imperative.
0: That is really beautifully said. I have more questions, but I almost want to... <laughs> wrap up the show on what you just said, what's next for you p m h are you teaching? are you doing seminars no, no 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 i i was shown well i i'll
1: I'll do what the public wants me to do as far as talks and teaching and that kind of stuff um but as far as goals, my own personal goals um last spring, so I was talking about the spring of two thousand and ten uh shortly after well no no the word came through from the other side, that is to say, my guidance, two years ago. that it is now time to wrap up my work and, you know, uh, finish my near-death work. And it took me a whole year to get in the consciousness of accepting that. And then in 2010, I did it. Summarized all the work and came up with near-death experiences, the rest of the story. And after I had... Done the book, sold, sold to a publisher. Then I was given an incredible uh, vision—not a dream, vision—and in that vision, I was sh- I was shown that I had six more major books to write. I mean, you know, I can write as many books as I want, of course, but six more. And um, and I was shown uh, what five of these books were and given the titles for them. So they're now on the sofa in in my office. Uh, um, piles of each of these books and, and a big piece of paper on top of a You know, great big color, the titles of each, you know, and I'm starting to build the information uh, for them. And one of those I'm on now, and it is my last big research book. Um, and it will it will complete the series of books I've been writing on the new children. Um, my first one was The New Children and Near-Death Experiences. The second one was Beyond the Indigo Children. Please notice the word beyond. And I'm now working on my third and last about, um, about the new children, evolution of the human species, time cycles. Um, I'm on chapter seven of that book and had to put it to one side to promote this book uh, but eventually I'll get back to it and then after that uh, the first book I'm writing after that big research book is is a memoir I I thought well (laughs) I think definitely maybe finally I can do something simple (laughs) memoirs usually are simple (laughs) I'm going to be writing two of them and another very special book I will not discuss at this time and um we 'll see where it goes from there, you know it 's like um, the door is really open for talks and workshops um if you 're talking about classes you know, my, my little mind is saying
0: classes, you know what on earth would you want me to teach you? <laughs> Sounds very exciting. One last question before we let you go oh okay, why do the dead? Hover in ceiling corners before moving on.
1: We have no idea.
0: What do you think that's about?
1: Last look. And there's, there's something about a corner that draws you, because you have, have so much protection, you know, all four ways, plus the slant uh, of, of viewing what's below you from a corner is uh, so much better than being right above or to one side. It it, it gives you a much better perspective of what you're viewing. So maybe that's why.
0: I want to share something with you about my dad's passing. Okay. The instructions that were left at Cedar sinai were to call immediately upon his passing because we didn't know exactly when he would pass. He organized and designed his own passing and timeline. He wanted to pass at the time that he organized it. My mother had Alzheimer's and he had taken care of her for like five years and was really ready to go himself. This often happens, by the way, with families. So he passed, we got the call, and I went into the room 20 minutes after he had been quote, gone. I went in with my girlfriend, and sat down. And I just turned her and said, "Don't worry about what I'm about to say or do right now. Just know that I know what to do." So I took my father's hand, and I started talking with him. First, I touched his third eye, his hands, his knees, his feet, etc. Sat down on the chair next to him and started to talk with him. First of all, he looked incredible. You would never know that he was dead, and As I started to talk with him, about 20 minutes into talking with him, because I operated like his spirit or something of him is still in the room, Mm -hmm. the room got so hot when I started to say what I needed to say at that particular time. That's what happens. Yeah. My girlfriend turned to me and said, oh, my God, this room is so hot. He's definitely hearing you. Anyway, I was there two hours. I finished. I did what I did and I left. But I know that my father heard me, even though, in the clinical sense, that his body was supposedly clinically dead for at least 20 minutes because I got there within 20 minutes. I drove pretty fast, by the way. <laughs> I was way up in Laurel Canyon. So I wanted to share with you that that was a really remarkable thing because. One of the deals I had with my dad before he passed is I said to him, now I'm going to call upon you even when you're not physically here anymore. (laughs) I said, I'm a global rainmaker. I'm not just in broadcasting. I'm a global rainmaker. And I want to open up rainmaking all over the world so that people are bringing things about. I said, your mission is not done here. When you cross over, I need you to open doors all over the world for me that I can't open. Do we have a deal? He laughed and he never believed in any of this. And he said, yes. I said, okay, I'm going to hold you to it. (laughs) Even though he was laying there clinically dead, I know my father heard me. I wish everybody would do that. It was so profound. Yeah. So profound. And, you know, in the Jewish tradition, you're not supposed to cremate, but he wanted to be cremated. So I ended up taking his ashes... Actually, I did an interview with the man who owned the crematorium, believe it or not, who brought my father's remains to the set. This was for television. And I went and I spread his remains exactly where he wanted it. Exactly. Good. And I can tell you that Rancho Golf Course on the first hole, my father's remains are over there. (laughs) He's at his former home on Johini Drive in the yard and at another park that he used to play tennis at with me. And it's really a profound thing to know that even though we all will pass at the clinical level, that we're still around, even if we reincarnate to being a different body with a different group. It's a profound thing. And I really thank you for all of the pioneering that you've done over the years and other new pioneering works you'll be doing with your new books. It's an honor of talking with you, having you on the show as a guest, and listening to you and receiving you. Thank you for gracing us with your presence, PMH Atwater. Bless you, Bless you. Bless you, too. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to PMH Atwater, pioneer in near-death research and the author of 10-plus books, her latest, You Must Buy It, Near-death experiences, the rest of the story, what they teach us about living, dying, and our true purpose. God bless you, PMH.
1: Thank you, dear.